Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 16th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into my guest's life journey and a chance for you to hear experiences potentially very different than you expect. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. I hope you'll see a bit of yourself in their journey and embrace we're more similar than not. Every once in a while, I encounter someone with a palpable, compelling energy about them. It's a force field that on one hand feels mighty and on the other exudes an open-heartedness. To me, this force is at the same time intriguing and quieting, and it is just a magnet that draws me in, which is one of the reasons I am in awe of my amazing guest today. She's the epitome of leading oneself, succeeding on her terms, and doing so, helping those around her work together for a shared purpose. You're in for a delight in getting to know her. My special guests have traveled far and wide, geographically, socioeconomically, mentally, and emotionally. I don't know that she expected to be where she is now in life ever. I do know she's at the tip of the iceberg for her impact on the world. A Spanish major in university, she started in high finance, including the Cisneros Group Family Office, Jeffrey's Group, and UBS Investment Bank, where she cultivated her ability to advise and work with principals from senior executives to heads of state. She found her way from profits to purpose and joined the World Bank Group, where she served in the capacity of advisor, confidant, and chief of staff to the bank president, as the bank underwent an operational transformation with new goals to end extreme poverty by 2030 and to boost shared prosperity, focusing on the bottom 40% of the population in developing countries. She's now combined her private and public sector experiences at private equity firm Global Infrastructure Partners, serving as assistant vice president and senior advisor to the firm's vice chairman. I am so pleased to introduce my friend and brilliant light, Shalimar Adorno. Shalimar, thank you for joining me on Our Voices. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here with you. It's a treat for me and and for sure for listeners. Uh, I was so thrilled. I read parts of your life journey in a chapter of a book, Spike, which stands for Strengths Positively Identified Kickstart Excellence by Renee Carayol. Yours is an especially moving story. uh, And I appreciate, uh, Shalimar, your willingness to share your journey uh, with listeners. Sure. And and thank you for taking the time to to read my story. I think that, you know, at times we don't always know that we have a story to share. And yet, you know, there's so much power in in sharing those stories. Right. And so um, so I was I was born and raised in the South Bronx uh, to uh, my mom was 16 when she was pregnant. She had me at 17 and um, and she lived with my grandmother. So I was raised by my mom, grandmother uh, three crazy uncles who took turns going in and out of jail, uh, and my step-grandfather. 
Uh, I lived in, you know, I lived in the Bronx for about 10 years. And then when I was about 10, my parents and my siblings and I, we moved to Puerto Rico, where we lived for about a year and a half. And, and in the book, I talk about how that was, you know, probably the most amazing year and a half of my childhood, just because, uh, whereas in the Bronx, you're unable to, to ride your bike outside for fear that, you know, that, you know, something will happen to you. My parents were pretty okay with me going outside and riding my bike or my unicycle that I later learned how to ride or, um, or, you know, just in general, it was just a different, it was a, it was a different world. Uh, and so we lived there for a year and a half. And I think that part of the thread that you'll, you probably read throughout the, the story is that, you know, we were really poor growing up and um, we didn't always have the bare essentials, right? We didn't always have food and, and, uh, you know, we didn't always know, you know, where the next meal was going to come from. And so living in Puerto Rico really sort of alleviated that stress, I'd say, because if you were hungry, you could always pick something off of a tree or you could always borrow eggs from the neighbor uh, who had like a chicken coop or um, and, you know, we always had rice. And so I say all this to say that, you know, that it was by far one of those experiences that sort of really instilled in me that, that the possibilities were, were endless. You just had to, you just had to be there for the taking. Um, and so when I was 12, we moved from Puerto Rico to Atlanta. And I just want to preface every time we move, we really moved because my parents, you know, they were hoping to find um, sort of a different beginning. We were looking for a better life. Obviously my dad was looking for a better paying job and so we moved to Atlanta and, uh, you know, we lived in Atlanta for about a year and a half and Atlanta proved to be one of those experiences that, you know, that, that really brought us all as a family to our knees. I mean, my dad had, you know, he found us a, a new apartment, a rental apartment. Um, he was happy to see us because he had came to Atlanta a few months before we actually arrived so that he could get settled and get a job. And when we arrived at the apartment, although the apartment was bare, we were just happy to be together, right? But a few days into our move to Atlanta, I, I noticed that my dad was a bit withdrawn and, you know, he, you know, he, he seemed to be keeping to himself. And it turned out that um, a few days in, we, we no longer had food in the apartment once again. And my dad had gone to work. And a few hours in, later in the morning, we got a knock on the door. And because, you know, we were sleeping on the floor, it was almost hard to get up from the floor, right? Because we just hadn't had anything to eat. And we realized um, when, when we opened up the door that there were these strangers from a church that we obviously had never heard from. And so unbeknownst to us, my dad had gone to work that day and he um, was crying by his machine in the factory that he worked in. And his boss came over and asked him what was going on. And he explained, you know, brought my family over. We really, you know, we don't have anything. And so this man, who I think is an angel sent from heaven, uh, spoke to his wife who had actually just had her own baby. And she made some phone calls and found the church that, you know, you know, came over and brought some food, some clothing, and connected us to or an organization that would, you know, continue to sort of support us while we stayed in Atlanta. And um, it was important for me to share this in the book, and I'm obviously sharing it here, because it was one of those moments where you realize that, you know, the last thing as human beings that we should ever lose is hope, right? And so, 
Um, I have always been a really God-fearing Christian. I was raised Catholic, and I pray every night before I go to bed, and I would pray in the morning. Uh, but I was starting to lose that hope, right? I mean, I started to feel like you don't have the bare essentials, so what else am I really waking up to do every day, right? And so we, um, we moved from Atlanta. We decided to go back to New York to be with family. And we stayed in New York, I'd say, for the next few years until I then went away, you know, to college. And all along the way, again, this thread of not having and sort of always having limited resources was sort of a theme uh, in our lives. I mean, once I get back to New York, you know, schools in New York at the time, they weren't the best schools. And my mom's like, well, you're going to go to private school, right? And I'm thinking to myself, like, how are we going to afford private school? And it turns out that um, she, it was decided that she would start, you know, selling her food stamps, turning them into cash so that she could pay for me to go to, you know, to a private school. And um, that, again, was um, a moment where we realized that although this wasn't, you know, ideal, right, this is sort of what she decided she would do. She was investing in my education. Um, then we moved, you know, to Brooklyn and I was on a full scholarship. They sent me to a private school in the city, St. Michael Academy, where I was, you know, there for four years. And with the scholarship, I also got a sponsor who made all the difference in insurance that I, you know, that I got into college. And so, um, I, I applied to, to colleges and I got accepted to Penn State. And, um, and her name was Tanya and Tanya would go on to be someone who would not just support me through my high school years, but she's been a friend and a su really supportive person in my life. And I, and I have to say, if it wasn't for Tanya, I'm not sure that I would have ever gone to school. Uh, and so that's, um, the, the, the thread here has always been that, you know, it, no matter how hard things have been, some way, somehow someone comes in and is able to sort of shine the light at the end of the tunnel and um, and just really sort of solidify that notion that, you know, anything, anything is possible. Anything is possible if you have faith. Uh, I'm just, I'm blown away. I, even though I've read this um, in the book, the, the, the growing up in places that are tough, could you just help folks appreciate you know, the physical, when you don't have physical safety, uh, Shalimar, when you don't have food, um, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to dramatize it, but, you know, what, what goes through your head? Is it just, so this is just a reality, you know, don't go outside and get shot today. I, I'm, I'm really wondering how you would articulate that. You know, that's a good question, Molly, because the truth is, if I'm honest, that because I'm in the same environment with my peers, right, and with folks, it's not like I lived in a neighborhood where others were better off than we were. We were all sort of not, you know, we were all sort of rowing in the same direction. No one had more than someone else. And so you sort of normalize it, if I'm honest, right? Because, you know, we understood that that was the danger that lied outside, but we also knew that we had to go outside. You have to go to school, you have to go to work. Again, um, it's this notion and, you know, that, you know, again, I, I grew up very faith based. My aunt, my great aunt Carmen was pivotal and always, you know, instilling in me that, well, don't worry about it. If that's what you need to do, you, you do what you need to do. You work hard and the rest will fall into place and not really knowing what the rest really meant. Right. Um, I mean, I guess another way to think of it is that they, they, they felt like like you were always faced with a closed door. 
right? And that at times can feel like you would lose hope that anything would be any different, right? But I, um, I, I didn't, and I don't know that any of the folks that were being raised in the same area or environments that I was ever thought to themselves that, you know, that they were almost crippled by the notion that this is the environment that we were in. No, we forged ahead because we understood that there were no other options but to do so. Yeah, that's just a, a level of resilience uh, and really keeping the faith that I think is, is it would be hard for, for it's certainly hard for me to actually truly appreciate. Um, if you don't mind going there, I know you had a really, really, really dark period after you um, left Puerto Rico um, uh, with your brother. Um, you comfortable sharing that? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so my brother, Mike, he was my biological father's um, son. He, um, I met him when I was 10 and I moved to Puerto Rico because he had always lived there with my biological father. And about, um, you know, maybe if I, I met him when I was 10, he was 11. When I was 17, I got a call saying that he had not been seen for a few days and that you know, they were just a bit concerned. At the time, my grandmother had been raising him because my biological father had passed away. And I think, um, well, two things. I think that once my, my, you know, once our father passed away, his life sort of spiraled because I had been his hero and, and the person that sort of kept them, you know, um, in line. And, and so my grandmother was raising him, but I don't know that she really could sort of really raise him in a way where she could really grasp what it was to be his age and to have this sense of loss. And so we found, um, I got another call a, a few days later saying that they had found his body and that someone who owned a farm by the beach had, you know, seen this body and that it had been there for a few days and that they were going to do some analysis just to make sure that it was, you know, who it was, but it became pretty apparent because of a tattoo that he had in his arm, that it was him. And, you know, Molly, we all have moments in our lives that really sort of, you know, almost feel like they're going to kill you. And I was living in New York at the time. And my, my dad, which is my stepdad, gave me the news. He just, you know, he told me, you know, they found, they found the body and, and it was your brother. And, and it was also not so much that he passed away. It was how he was brutally murdered. And I would go on to spend the next 10 years of my life. I mean, in was just, you know, with just deep, deep despair. I kept replaying in my head just how, you know, how his, how they murdered him, how they, what he might have felt, like just replaying this tape in my head, which is not healthy, you know? So um, when I got to Penn State, I, I had never been to therapy, but I started going to therapy. And, you know, no therapy in the world really, um, allowed me to sort of live with the fact that he was never coming back, right? Or that, you know, because you don't get over something like this, right? You just learn to live with it. And so one day I had this dream. I was out of college. I was about to move into my first apartment. And I remember having a conversation with a friend saying, you know, I have no pictures of my brother to put up. And I had a dream that night where he came to me in a dream. And in the dream, I was looking at these pictures that were on a wall of him and I, and when I look towards the end of the wall, I see him standing there and I'm like, oh my God, what are you doing here? And he says to me, what are you doing, Shalimar? I go, what do you mean? What am I doing? He's like, you know, 
you're driving yourself crazy trying to figure out how is it that that this happened to me I go well of course I'm going myself crazy like I in my mind you must have suffered so much and I kept asking like did you suffer he says no I didn't suffer he goes but um but I need you to let me rest in peace let's just come over here and he and he signaled to the area where there was a bed a mattress really on the floor and he says just go to bed and just know that I'm okay but I need you to be okay because it's been too long and, you know, I closed my eyes in the dream. And when I opened them back up in the dream, it was, there was like a light where he had been at. And I have to tell you, Molly, from that day forward, I, I think about him, obviously, but it doesn't bring me to my knees. Like, I just have this sense of resolve that, okay, that happened and that I can't change the circumstances. Me reliving them won't do me any good. And so um, I've come to peace with that, if that makes any sense. Uh, it does. And I have tears in my eyes. So thank you for sharing that very, very difficult situation and how you got through it. And a decade is a long time to hold that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's amazing. And it does, uh, for folks who have the privilege of crossing paths with you in person, it does, you can see the, the calm, um, the force of calm that you have. And certainly an experience like that really contributes to it. Um the um, but we'll get to your your college years. You mentioned Tanya really being instrumental, and what uh, what did she do specifically to to help you, you know, forge a path and and make your way to the great Penn State? Yeah, she. Uh, so when I um, when I was in ninth grade, I got a scholarship through an organization called Student Sponsor Partners. And, uh, and the, the way the scholarship was set up is that if you got the scholarship, someone would pay for your tuition, but then you would also, you know, and this is someone that you may or may not have met. And then separately, they would have someone who was your mentor and just kind of guided you through in high school, was an ear to lean on and someone who would support you. And that's, that's Tanya. And so when I got to senior year, the summer before senior year, we, you know, we, you know, she, she took me to visit different universities and colleges. She had gone to Brown, so we went to Brown, we went to Penn State, we went to a few places. And, you know, when we were filling out applications, you know, we realized that I was about $1,000 short. And, um, and we would have to, you know, get like a loan, like another loan outside of the unsubsidized or subsidized loans that I was getting at the moment where I was being offered. And, I didn't have anybody who had good credit. I didn't have anyone who had any means. I mean, I was the first person to graduate from high school in my family. So going to college was just, it was, it wasn't, we, none of us were really financially prepared for it. And she says, well, you're just not going to not go to school because you need a thousand dollars, even if I have to give you that thousand dollars. And so eventually we found a way of getting a loan. But that was one of the very many things that I felt that she brought to the table. It was the support. It was the fact that she really believed in me and that she rooted for me. Like she had a vested interest in seeing me succeed. And, you know, Molly, I think that because I didn't know anyone who had been to college before, aside from my teachers, you know, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to to decide that you're just gonna you're just gonna stay home and figure out what job you you know you take on that allow you to pay the bills and, and help your parents you know in any way that you can. Well, the power, and I hope listeners are realizing how uh, one being can just make such a huge difference. Obviously, helping line up the finances one aspect, but this sense of 
you know, when you sometimes don't believe in yourself, knowing that someone else does, and that can be the catalyst for sure. greatness to come. That's crazy. How did you, you know, you know, again, with no experience of, you know, university, college level, how did you feel going in? You know, you have such a, you just move with a great amount of grace and you stand up tall. And I could imagine it, it could feel a little intimidating. Like all these people have some, know something that I don't know. So how did you, how did you handle that transition? You mean the transition into school? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I didn't know what to expect. There wasn't really a lot to handle. And I was, <laughs> it was almost a little, I was a bit naive if I'm honest. I mean, I just, you know, all you know is, you know, you, you watch these movies about how amazing it must be to be in college and live in the dorms and all these things. Um, you know, I, I just look, education has always been the light in my life, right? I always understood fundamentally that if I wanted to lead a different life, I had to be educated. I had to educate myself. Right. And so uh, me knowing that I got accepted to Penn State and that I was going to go there and that the money piece had already sort of been settled meant that I had to show up and I just had to make sure that I graduated. And so that was about the only goal that I had. I wanted to learn as much as I could. I wanted to, I wanted to really embrace the whole experience because I felt that, you know, that, that so many people were, you know, not just rooting for me, but were also relying on me, right? I mean, when, when you grow up with very little, at least in my family, you know, you always learn to think in teams. And so it's not that I'm just being successful. I want to be successful for myself. I want to be successful and I want to do good because I want to lead a purposeful life, but also because I want to be able to take care of my parents and I want to be able to take care of my siblings. And so I think the the both the grit and resilience that I was, you know, sort of that had been instilled in me. And then, of course, this attitude of knowing that no matter what I was going to be faced with, I wasn't going to give up and I wasn't going to come home without a degree. Wow. Was was given what you'd gone through, was anything hard about being uh, at Penn State for you? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, I went, again, from being in this bubble where everyone looked like me and, and you know, everyone, um, you know, everyone had the same means that we did to, you know, um, I had friends whose parents would send them a few thousand dollars every month to pay their rent and to buy them food. Whereas, you know, I had a full-time job the whole time I was at Penn State. I was actually still supporting my family financially because I had been working since the age of 12. So that meant that, you know, me not being home didn't mean that I still didn't have that responsibility. So it was, it was being introduced to a whole other world that I just didn't know existed. You know, I didn't know this other world of quote unquote abundance. So it was a huge culture shock. Uh, but I, but at Penn State, as you might imagine, it's such a big university. There was also a, a pretty, pretty big group of Hispanics that had came either from the island or, or, you know, from the respective countries. And we all sort of stuck together and we all had the same story, right? So that also made me feel, um, it always made me feel much, very much so at home. Um, and, and these are friends that I, I still have today. And we, and we talk about this because we just never thought we'd ever, we, as much as we were there and we knew that we had to get a degree, many of us doubted we would just because it, it was just so hard and so tough. A lot of times we did go hungry even while we were there. Wow. Do you have a particularly joyous memory of school? 
Oh, I mean, I have, I mean, I have a bunch. I mean, I think, um, again, a lot of my very close friends I met at Penn State, they're my friends today. And these are friends that, you know, part of the reason that we're as close, I think, as we are, is because we really see each other, right? We're, we're not here to impress each other, no matter, you know, one of us, you know, succeeds, all of us succeed. And when one of us fails, we all, we're all there to, to step in and support. Um, I remember one time though, um, I was, uh, I was with uh, two friends of mine at a bar. It was like two in the afternoon. And between the three of us, we had about five bucks to our name. And we said to ourselves, well, you know, it's the end of the school year. We should be celebrating. What does five bucks really buy us? And so we managed to go to this sports bar that had unlimited wings for like 10 cents each or something. And we all shared a drink. And the reason I'm sharing that is because even though we graduated from college 20 years ago, a week ago, uh, it was, it, it, I mean, as much as most people be like, oh, I feel so sorry that you have $5. No, I mean, we were just happy to be there and happy that we had that experience. And, and it stayed with us because it kept us hungry, right? It kept us wanting more for our lives. And, and, we, um, and we didn't allow the things that didn't go so well to really define us. We were just so forward thinking. Ah, it's so bloody inspiring to have times, you know, could be hungry at school. I mean, I just don't know that that's what college kids have any concept of. And to look at the, the, the opportunity and the brightness is just awesome. Oh my God, you're just spectacular. Uh, let me ask, how do you identify, I mean, you, you know, you grew up here in New York, but how do you identify ethnically? If someone says, oh, you know, help me about your background. How do you, how do you what do you say? So I always say I'm Puerto Rican and I know that some people, um, you know, they, they'll say, oh, so you're Puerto Rican American. And that seems a little odd to me just because, you know, if you know Puerto Ricans, we're really proud of being Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, um, I guess I am Puerto Rican American because I was born and raised in the States, right? I did, you know, go back to Puerto Rico uh, growing up. I've always spoken both languages and um, even in terms of our values and culture, our par my parents were very much so, they instilled that in us, you know, the whole notion of, you know, um, we have a lot of sayings, we, um, the way we treat our family, again, this whole notion of thinking in teams, uh, and always, um, you know, how you carry yourself, how you think about how, who you'll marry and, and, and whether dating is a thing, like you don't date really in our culture, maybe today, but not normally, right? Normally you met a guy, you spoke to your parents, and then that would be the guy that you would marry, right? And my parents were so militant growing up that there was no way for you to forget that that's who you were. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I always say that I'm Puerto Rican, but factually I'm Puerto Rican American. Yeah, I get it. I, you know, I, I, again, I, um, my parents were Chinese parents are from overseas and I, I'm proud to be American. I, I think that's obvious. So I always say I'm, I'm Chinese <laughs> and it never dawns on me. It's like you, I'm like, why would I say I'm Chinese American? It seems weird <laughs> to me. Um, let's talk about some of the, the bias, you know, in the world, the whole black lives matter and we had the anti-Asian sentiments. And I'm just, I'm wondering your perspective on, um, on that, you know, how you feel about it, a uh, particular experience of bias that you, you might share with folks and, you know, kind of how can, how can we all be better, you know, to make the world a place where really everyone can be their true self? 
Well, you know, um, oh, this is such an important question. Um, and and I'll, I'll give you two different answers. First, um, I think the pandemic has just really reminded us of just how uneven our world is, right? I mean, you know, while many of us are able to work from home, like me, uh, some of us have to go out to work and you have to be, and they have to be in the front line because essentially they're essential workers. And in essence, for in order for our society to keep running, they, they have been tasked with keeping us, you know, the rest of the world safe, right? And although I know that the federal and, you know, local government, you know, they've upped their game to take a better look at those um, who don't have, right, under this like glare of publicity, it's still nowhere near enough. And, you know, and I think that we appreciate the power of inclusion, Molly, until we are excluded, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's been my experience, at least when I, um, in certain roles that I've had, where people are pretty surprised that there's a Puerto Rican from the Bronx running the president's office, right? Uh, some of them, you know, are supportive and they would bring other Puerto Ricans from the organizations to come and meet me because I worked in the president's office. But some of them, they weren't so excited about that. And either way, I always knew that I had a job to do and I just didn't kind of get caught up in that. But it's, it, it still um, gives you pause because it makes, it, it just begs the question, like, what are, how are people raised and where did you learn to, to sort of, you know, either create distance or decide to minimize someone because of where they come from or, or who you perceive them to be? Yeah, I, uh, I don't know how, I mean, it's just, it, it, I, you know, I use, I guess this, this is my rationalization. I, I use the excuse of, well, I just think there's deep, deep down a fear. Sure. Um, that's the yeah. only way I can kind of, if you will, rationalize it, that one would put down, exclude another. And, you know, and I say this having done that myself, not proud of it, having had it done to me as well. And so I think if you learn the full circle of it, you can start to hopefully appreciate it's better. Have you, have you encountered that, you know, recently? I'm just wondering how you have addressed it when you've maybe seen a very egregious example of people putting down others or, or not keeping a level playing field? How have you handled that? You know, I, um, I haven't experienced that. I mean, obviously in the last year and a half, I don't, I haven't really left my house too often unless <laughs> I have to travel. Uh, but I do work for someone who's Asian and at times when we have to get him into the office, you now have to think about, well, what's the best way to get him here where we don't have to worry about his safety. Right. And the fact that I have to even think of that, you know, it's just it, it's it's both um, maddening, but it's also so just so sad because I say that for two reasons. Sad because it's it's um, if you're educated enough, you know that, first of all, we don't pick what we're going to be in life. Right. But we're all human beings. And I, I don't I just don't subscribe to this notion that some of us should be treated less than anyone else. And I guess maybe I'm sensitive to it because as someone who was raised with very minimal resources, you know, you climb your way to the top thinking that, okay, now we're in an even playing field just to realize that you may never actually get there. And you, you know, and then that's, and that's, and that's unfortunate, but also because I think that when you are in a position of power, you have a responsibility to understand that when you speak, you speak in an amplified voice. And so the fact that people who've been in these positions have amplified 
the dislike or maybe disdain for others or Asians in this in this in this instance. Um, it's both. It, it's really scary, and it's and it's very very much so um, maddening. Yeah. I'm with you. I think it is a one by one in some ways. And I think people like you are such a great example for helping you know, people, you know, and I can't fault people for not knowing what they don't know. I think right. that there is this, you know, kind of you and I would probably think we just think there's a certain responsibility to be open and just ask, huh, maybe there's something here that I don't know and to, to be open. And I, and I guess that, um, that would be something that hopefully can take us to a much better place. Sure. Um, I would love to segue to the career because it's very exciting how you navigated your career. So will you, will you share with listeners that journey? Yeah. You know, so, um, so when I was in college and obviously after going through, um, you know, after losing my brother, I remember feeling the sense of, well, I want to, I want to go into a career where I, don't want others to experience what I had experienced. You know, my brother had been murdered. We didn't know who had murdered him. No one could really give us answers. And I not only not wanted to feel that way, but I wanted to be, I wanted to be able to support others who were ever in that position so that I, you know, could, um, could alleviate some of that stress or pain. And so I had decided that I would go into the FBI when I was in college. And then few years in, I realized that they had a freeze. And so here comes senior year, about six months before I graduated, I get a, an email from a Hotmail account from someone saying, hey, we're going to be on campus and we'd like to have a conversation with you. Would you, you know, would you be interested? It was very vague. But you know, Molly, for anyone who's been in college, we, you know, you just want to get a job, right? And right. so... Um, I had a call with them and then I met with them on site and they then went on to explain that they were coming in from the CIA and that they'd like to recruit, you know, for a particular role. And they had to do a bunch of testing. So it's a bunch of assessment tests. You had to be a good writer, just a few things. And then once you were tested on campus, if you did well enough, then then they would, you know, you'd go to Virginia and, and go through further testing and physical exercises and all that stuff. And so then I got word that I did well enough to, you know, come over to Virginia, which I did. And, um, and I remember learning that apparently most human beings have a 2% hair loss and Shalimar has none. And, and I always joke that it might be the Puerto Rican and us because we're always paying attention to other people's business, right? So, <laughs> you know, when I think about that, you know, but um, so I came back to New York. I graduated August um, 4th of 2001 and then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden, there was like no need for me to go into the CIA because the role that I had been applying to was really no longer, it wasn't a priority, right? And so, again, uh, I had to tap into that resilience and that grit and I, and I did other jobs. And then one day, a friend of mine asked me to, you know, to apply to this job in investment banking. And I did. It was in a Latin America group. And as someone who had a degree in Spanish, I thought, well, that must be a good fit. And, um, and so I started, I started at UBS in about 2006 and, you know, I worked for a really, really tough guy in a really great team there. I always refer to them as a bunch of Michael Jordans. Um, there were folks 
that came from a completely different world than I did. Most of them were very wealthy. Most of them didn't really have to work, but they were working and they were working hard. And, you know, everybody, I was embraced by them. You know, they knew that I came from a different world. I mean, some of those people I'm still really good friends with today. I mean, I mean, I have a friend of mine, Maria Lee, who is Korean, but she was born in Bolivia and at a year and a half, she moved to Venezuela. And so her and I would only speak in Spanish. So imagine going you know, out with a Korean woman and you go places and you're speaking in Spanish because speaking anything other than Spanish would be disrespectful to her and me, right? Because that's our native language, even though she looks different than I do, right? So suddenly I was just introduced to like this other world where people worked really hard and they... Um, and, and they didn't care where you came from. And so I think that was the beginning for me of understanding that if I worked really hard, I could, I could accomplish anything in life. Um, and so I worked there for about four years and the managing director stepped down. He went to another boutique investment bank. We worked there for another two or three years um and so forth and so on and so my I always sort of aligned the roles that I went after you know with my purpose like what is it that I really hope to accomplish what was what was the end goal and um and when I felt like I had learned enough and that there was nothing else for me to really explore in a role then I I always felt like it was my responsibility to really just pivot in a different direction and, and and you know figure out what else was 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 available to me did you, is that, did someone coach you to that? I mean, that's so, um, it's, uh, what is it? It's very strategic to say, here I am and I, this is what I'm getting and I'm going to like figure it out. And then when I'm done here, I need to move on and, and continue to learn. And most people are not as proactive or intentional. And did that just come natural for you? Like so obvious or did someone help you learn that? You know, no, I didn't have any coach. I actually didn't even know the word coach or that a coach existed outside of playing sports until um, I went into another role uh, working for a billionaires, but um, I think that inherently because I was again raised, I go back to how I was raised because it was just just really set the foundation for who I would I guess eventually become. You know, I just always felt this responsibility to always learn. I just think that as human beings, we have to be, we have to you know remain curious. And I find value in being open to learning. I mean, every job I've gone into, I've had to learn something new. I knew nothing about the World Bank until I started working at the World Bank. I didn't know anything about investment banking until I got to investment banking. I certainly didn't know much about private equity until I landed there, right? And there's something about taking on a role that's challenging, right? And, and, and also very much so male-dominated uh, that I find exciting. And so... Um, it, that was definitely something that came natural to me. And of course, now looking back, I, I, I realized that I've had a lot of support along the way. I didn't, I didn't just know that this was what was happening in my head, but be, between the support and, and, and a lot of hard work, you know, these, these roles came about and I, and I really, and I just embraced them. That's so amazing. I am shout out to all my female friends in financial services and rocking it because it is it is a shark infested area and i i where i can't i can't swim in those waters so really cruise you for figuring it out this do a quick segue on the the working for the billionaires that was uh-huh. really fascinating yeah you know uh so after i left banking i uh was approached i i you know there was a girl who worked with me in banking who had just gotten another job she introduced me to 
Laura. Laura works at Beacon Hill Staffing. I have to tell you, she's the best in the game in terms of recruiters, and I owe her, I owe her a great deal. Uh, she told me about this role that came up for a billionaires who owned 12 homes all over the world, and she had children, she had grandchildren, she was the largest Latin American art collector as well in the world. And uh, I knew nothing about the world, about the art world per se, but I was excited about the opportunity, you know, about the opportunity to actually use my Spanish skills to um, on a daily basis, just because I had done that for the last six years while I was in banking. And, you know, when I met her, I had seen pictures of her online and she was way more regal even in person. But again, this is a world that I'm, I know nothing about. I mean, I, I grew up with no resources and so very minimal resources. And so to be in the space with so much abundance, I'd say that the fact that I grew up the way that I grew up really kept me grounded, right? Because I understood fundamentally that that was their world and not mine. And I was totally okay with that. Uh, so when I started working with her, she, um, you know, she, you could tell that obviously she was interested in working with someone that she could trust. And I talked to her about my upbringing, about who I worked for at the moment, my relationship with my parents, with my grandmother and Carmen, who obviously meant a great deal to me. And I think something about my story, she just realized I wasn't trying to sell her anything. You know, I was just being myself, you know, because no one can be a better you than you, right? And, yes. and, and, you know, a lot of times you find people in interviews, I mean, I've had roles where I've had an interview and, you know, and onboard many people and I find it, it's a missed opportunity when they, you know, when they sort of put up the show or the facade, right? Um, and so, yeah, I worked with her for about three years and that was a really fascinating experience. I mean, funny enough, you know, you'd have to drive or pick me up in the projects in the Bronx because I'd take care of my grandmother on the weekends or my great aunt. And then they take me to Teterboro to get on a G5. I mean, talk about two worlds apart. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I mean, I always joke that the driver, if he could put two seatbelts on while he was waiting me, for me in front of the projects, he would have. Um, but I wear that as a badge of honor, right? Because that is who I am. And I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed of where I came from. If anything, I'm glad that I had those experiences that really... Um, really allowed me to navigate the world on my terms and not give that power away to anyone else. Uh, you are just spectacular. Um, okay, I, I know. So you want to do a little quick thing on your segue to public sector. And then I do want to get into, you know, just dreaming a little bit about what you see, you know, maybe in the next decade of, uh, sure. of your life. Yeah, so... Um, so you want to speak about, I'm sorry, the public sector? Well, the public sector is such a, you know, here you are in, you know, the hardcore, uh, <laughs> you know, like money. It's a money world. It's fine. You know, it's a money world. Yeah. And then, you know, but you've got this heart. So it just, it's an interesting uh, journey to be able to do both, you know, in one's career. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have to say the most rewarding job I've had, and I've had many rewarding sort of roles, but this Working um, at the World Bank Group was by far one of the most rewarding jobs I, I, I ever had. Obviously, um, who you work for, Molly, as you know, makes it makes all the difference, right? And so I went, you know, I was approached to, again, by Laura to, um, she says, you know, Shalom, I have this role and it's at the World Bank Group. Would you be willing to move to D.C.? I was like, no, like, I'm fine in New York. She was like, well, why don't you just think about it? And then, of course, I did some research on who I would be working with. And I was like, wow, this guy seems like he's kind of a big deal. And like, you know, in terms of like, he's just such a good guy, right? 
I didn't quite know that he was a big deal yet, but I knew that, you know, when I would hear him speak and, and when I understood what the bank, you know, was, was hoping to accomplish, that really spoke to, to my purpose in life. And so um, I decided to go on the interview and I have to tell you, Molly, you've met him, you know him well. Uh, when we, when I walked into the room to be interviewed by him, it was like I was walking into my uncle's house to have coffee and I don't even drink coffee. You know, like I, I'm not someone who, you know, I mean, you just used to being so armed because that's the world that, you know, that banking is. And so, you know, we walked in and he, he didn't ask me any questions about the job. He wanted to know about Shalimar. He wanted to know about my life, about, you know, my parents. He wanted to know about my siblings. And of course, today, I know that he's also an anthropologist, aside from being an infectious disease doctor. But I was just so, so touched. I mean, it was just his whole energy, his whole aura. I, I mean, when he spoke to me about the work that he was hoping to accomplish and why it was important, I mean, he had dedicated his life to helping the disenfranchised. You realize, you know, you just, I looked at him and suddenly I felt like, oh, there he is. There's that person that I feel will continue to inspire me for years to come. That's, that's the best way for me to explain that. And the truth is that I thought that the job was a huge job and I wasn't sure that I could do it. But uh, when I left there, I thought to myself, you know, this guy deserves the best person for the job, even if that person isn't me. And so I got on the Amtrak train to come back to New York. And lo and behold, I got a call from Laura. She goes, Shalom, are you moving to D.C.? And Molly, that job changed the course of my life forever. It just did, you know. All of a sudden, I realized that I was truly standing in my purpose to, to be able to walk into an institution that focused on ending extreme poverty and boosting shared prosperity. And that I would be doing this um, with, with Dr. Kim. I, I mean, what, what would be the odds that our paths would actually cross? I mean, that, it, that to me, that was divine intervention. And so I was going to I was going to jump into it and I was going to do good work and I was going to pray a lot that I would be guided in the direction that, you know, that God needed to use me. Because again, I didn't know much about this world, but I was absolutely inspired. Ugh, you have me floating on a cloud and I hope <laughs> listeners are appreciating, you know, just this can do with the gratitude and just like going to make it work. It's so, so fabulous. And and I am just totally grateful to to Dr. Kim too, because I would never have met you otherwise. It's just like, and it's meant to be, you know, what's meant to Likewise. be is meant to be. Oh, <laughs> so amazing. So just a minute or two, you know, not to forecast the future, but for listener's sake, you know, what are some things that you think about off in the future that you're interested to learn about or think that are areas you want to grow in? You know, um, I'm, so I'm currently at Georgetown. I'm pursuing a certificate in um, leadership coaching. And I find that, you know, um, you know, vulnerability is really the most accurate measure of courage, Molly. And so as a coach, and you know, um, you know, you're not supposed to be digging for dirt. You're supposed to be digging for gold when you're when you're across a client or a leader that's coming to you, right? And, and so I have found that I feel that I'm most useful in this world when I'm able to, you know, support others and really sort of finding their voice and their purpose in life and really owning that seat at the table and being okay with bringing your own folding chair when there isn't a seat available at the table, right? Um, with the understanding that leaders are, 
they're, they have wisdom, they're capable, and they don't need us to do the work for them. But we are there to certainly empower them. And so I think when I think of the future, I want to continue to do work that feels purposeful, not just for me, but for those that I encounter in life. Because the truth is that our legacy is the amount of lives that we touch. And so my my hope is that I can continue to sort of, you know, pave the way in this journey where others realize that the same way that I exist, that there's no reason why you couldn't accomplish not much more than I did, right? Because I didn't have the support that most of us do have. That's spectacular. And this is quotable. Bring your own folding chair when (laughs) there isn't a seat at the table. I absolutely love it. I love it. So this is perfect segue to the say it skillfully part. And rather than me, I know you had a scenario and I wanted to have Shalimar share with listeners a very skillful way to handle this. So I'll hand it over to you. Yes. And so I was in a role once where a lot of what I did was to ensure that, you know, any contracts that came our way, that they were sound and that, you know, they weren't misappropriating um, the, the resources that we were allowing them. And so there was a time where we realized that one of the contracts um, was, in fact, being misused. And so I sat down with the person and said, listen, I really think that the work that you do is just really extraordinary. And I'm not sure that we could do without the work, but we've realized that we just can't afford you anymore. And so I, you know, and and I know that it's probably uncomfortable and, and somewhat tacky to speak about money, but this is a business. And so I wanted to personally just speak to you about that and say that, you know, obviously if in the future we're able to do work together where, um, we we could we could actually afford to bring your services on board. We'd be happy to do so, but but unfortunately, we are at, at an impasse. And so, um, I just want to thank you for the extraordinary work, and again, apologize that we are here, and and I do hope that we can continue to be in touch. And the truth is that a few months later, I got a call from this person saying, "You know, Shalimar." that last conversation we had was just so touching and touching enough that I think you fired me. And I didn't realize that you had actually fired me. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love it. The heart, the acknowledgement of the person sharing the facts, you know, very objectively. So folks uh, soak that in. That's absolutely spectacular. Um, Okay. Let's uh, we're going to bring this home. Uh, If you think about, um, your life, right? And you're, you are where you are. Um, is there a particular regret or do-over that you would share with listeners? Oh, this is a good question. Um, you know, as much as I've had experiences, Molly, that have brought me to my knees, and at times they felt like they almost killed me, I don't know that I have any regrets or do-overs per se, but I do think about I I think about two things often. I think about the fact that, again, you know, because our legacy is the amount of lives that we touch. When I think about my relationship with my great aunt Carmen, I really wish that I could have expressed to her just how much of a difference she made in my life by really solidifying this notion that it's so important to have a relationship with God and and, and how you navigate the world and how you treat other people. I mean, it's it's been a lifesaver for me. And it's allowed me to really handle things 
gracefully when at times I, I probably would have given up if I didn't have that faith that instead of thinking of things as failures that I, that I could lean into them and really figure out what the lesson was there. And then in, on a professional aspect, I think that part of what I don't do today, but before I was always hesitant to really speak up. And because I've always worked for the CEO or the managing director, you know, not speaking up sooner probably caused me a lot more grief than it needed to. So those would be the two things. Those are fantastic. And I, I also want to honor your your amazing aunt um, because uh, she's obviously an angel in this world smiling on you. Um, Shalomar, what's the biggest compliment someone's given you? Ah, um, you know that maybe the biggest compliment would probably be that, that I've impacted someone's life. You know, that when they, when they feel that they've left the conversation that we've had with a, with a different perspective, that's, that always feels great on the soul. That's awesome. Um, And as you've chatted, what uh, do you have a particular takeaway from kind of listening to yourself recount your life? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I think this, this real power, Molly, in sharing stories, and because you just don't know when your story might serve as testimony to someone else, right? Uh, I also, but I also think it's for all the, you know, listeners, I think that if you want to influence, you know, in order for you to really influence in the world, you need to learn how to communicate it, you know, you just do. And saying it skillfully will get you there. <laughs> I really love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, last thing. What was it like for you to share your journey today? You know, it's always a therapeutic process. No one knows your story better than you. Uh, and you don't always get to talk about it. And so thank you for actually, you know, uh, asking the questions and really helping me reflect on, on what this journey has really been for me. And um, it's not unique. Again, I, I think that we all have stories to share. And um, but I'm really grateful for this opportunity and for the platform. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I will tell you that, you know, I had tears, tears of sadness, tears of hope and awe really filled my eyes when I read about you, when I, when I speak with you. And, and I'll be honest, my faith is stronger for the blessing of souls like you on this earth, Shalimar, for sure. And I appreciate you uh, for sharing so generously with such an open heart. The world definitely needs more uh, souls like you. Um, I want to thank you for being part of the solution. I'm wishing you always cheering for you. And if I can be helpful, you let me know. Um, and I'm happy to be here for you. You take good care. Thank you. You too, Molly. You take great care. Oh, geez. She's just spectacular, folks. I don't know. I mean, my mom's going to be asking me, how do you find people like this? And I'm going to be like, I don't know, mom. It's a gift from above. Okay. To wrap my thought for the week, strength isn't about how much you can handle before you break. It's about how much you can endure after you've been broken. Um, and that's an unknown, probably adapted from Robert too. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Shalimar's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, 
More than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 